listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week May 29 to June 2nd. Highlights this week included our chat with Stephen Metcalf of Slate Culture Gab Fest. And also we had a bit of a discussion about what famous people would be good friends. Noel Gallagher. <laughs> and then we talked to Andrew Denton about Dying with Dignity, and then Laura Dunneman came in to be our Friday funny bugger and talk to us about anything she would rather talk to rather than. <laughs> I'm completely <forgetting>. Rather <laughs> than. <laughs> she, she talked about conversations that are better than talking about, about Chappelle, Chappelle Corby. Corby. Yeah, that. This one. <laughs> you are listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. This Wednesday evening, Triple R is presenting the Slate Culture Gabfest live at the Melbourne Convention Centre. It's going to feature a performance by Courtney Barnett as well as the usual Gabfest discussion by Dana Stevens, Julia Turner and our next guest, Stephen Metcalf, who is a critic at large at Slate Magazine. Welcome to Breakfasters, Stephen. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, Slate was one of the pioneers of online journalism, launching in 1996 the, Gab Fe- the Culture Gabfest began in 2008. What was your initial mission statement and what was the state of podcasting back then? Sure. Uh, well, po- pod- I'll take the second one. First, podcasting <laughs> was really primitive. Um, it was get in a broom closet uh, with a bunch of uh, two-cent words and shallow opinions and a, one microphone between three people, pass it around. A bit like Ash. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and gas on for 45 minutes and, and then be uh, completely astounded when anyone actually downloads and listens to it. I mean, I still can't quite believe it. But um, And then uh, as to Slate and getting into uh, uh, what our mandate was, uh, was essentially, I went to the guy who, you know, we have this huge juggernaut media public media juggernaut in the United States called NPR, right, responsible for ultimately for Serial, the Serial podcast, via this big program called This American Life. And it's ubiquitous in American life. It's kind of sonorous, boring, sleepy, self-important. And we thought, well, so are we. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thought maybe there, was room to, maybe there was room to talk in a different kind of tone of voice. And so they started a political, uh, the Slate uh, podcasting people started a political show and the concept behind that was when you get a bunch of editors and writers together and they talk about what stories they're going to run in Slate or the New York Times or wherever, uh, they, 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 they just throw it around the horn, right? Really loose. Um, they use a kind of insider lingo and they're way, way more candid than they are when the microphone, you know, the red light goes on and you're actually on air. So I said, why not make a podcast out of that? Right out of the out of kind of the pitch meeting for stories and and um, uh, so it was meant to be much more informal, uh, much looser and and way way more frank about the state of American politics. And then I had this little light bulb went off over my head, which is there are a million political chat shows. Uh, there seems to be a bottomless appetite for them, uh, you know. Uh, but there's no cult, there are no cultural equivalents really. And the truth is, we live out culture and pop culture it's as pervasive in our lives as politics is and uh, i thought it would be interesting just to have on a weekly basis three people get together in a room uh and kind of shoot the shoot the breeze about what's going on in uh in uh, in pop in pop culture and and also this this is the second thing i'll add very quickly is you know there's there's 
there's this sort of small army of people who've graduated from um, uh, culture studies programs over the last 20 or 30 years, and they've learned this technique for talking about anything. I mean, you can hand them a phone book or a maple leaf or, you know, tell them to look at a cloud and they can spout. Like Am I allowed to say? Am I allowed to say bullshit on your yeah, program? You <laughs> You're encouraged to say it's more or less compulsory. Yeah. So bullshit got quite fancy. <laughs> got, got quite fancy over the last twenty or thirty years, uh, thanks to high priced uh, graduate uh, education in America. And I thought, well, what if people kind of talk like that in a way? I mean, you take something really silly like Baywatch. You know, completely inane, seems to have been created without a thought in anybody's head, and you impute to it all kinds of motives that it probably didn't have using your hyper-sophisticated vocabulary. (laughs) How much has your podcast changed then from that initial idea of three people in a room having really candid chat? Like, obviously, you're much more conscious of what you're saying now. Well, we have three microphones now. Yeah. (laughs) Each each one, one for each of us. Um, You know, it's interesting. It's to me, what's really distinctive about podcasting as a medium is, you know, everyone always says radio is like the companionable um, medium and all the fear people had when television came along that it would disappear or be made obsolete turned out to be totally false. In fact, it only seemed more intimate to people because of what's sort of inherently alienating about TV. So people returned to radio, returned to radio, returned to radio. What's interesting about podcasting is unlike a radio where you snap it on and you hear what happens to be on and you're driving in your car and it's kind of ambient in the room and a bunch of people are listening to it together often, you take two earbuds and you cram them into your auditory canal. Almost everyone who listens to our show downloads it and listens to it using earbuds. I mean, I think earbuds are, are almost the distinctive thing about podcasting. And it's it's amazing. You're just crawling into someone. The sound of your voice is crawling into someone's brain. And it, it's just a completely conversational, informal, and intimate medium. But it's also a total asymmetry, right? They know. I have old friends who are like, I call them up. I haven't talked to them in six months. And, they're, and I'm like, God, I haven't talked to you in so long, John. It's great. He's like, I hear you every week. I don't need to. <laughs> this phone call is totally redundant. I, I, I have gotten enough Steve Metcalf in my life and they hang up on me. But, <laughs> but I, so we have no sense of who's listening in a way um, uh, uh, to podcasting. So in a sense, I know that our audience has grown, but I have no idea who the fuck they are. But do you think the other added bonus of a podcast is that you have complete control? creative control like you get to talk about whatever you want you don't have any upper management going you guys are going to talk about this today yeah i think that that's i think that that's really true and i think a big fact of the american media is um kind of everything is there's cross ownership of everything and so a lot of what you consume as supposedly disinterested criticism is actually coming from someone who really doesn't want to offend someone else and is hyper conscious of it and um we're we're not cross-owned we're nothing and and the fact that it began rinky dink and to this day feels rinky dink i mean none of us is a professional broadcaster by any means you know not even close and uh we feel at uh, totally at liberty to say what we feel and to say what we feel about this kind of gigantic squatting thing called hollywood you know i mean we don't always talk about hollywood but <laughs> you know the american media you're a writer as well as a broadcaster, even if you don't think of yourself as a broadcaster. You've just come from the Sydney Writers Festival. How do you compare the craft of writing criticism, of you know shaping sentences and paragraphs, with the craft of talking about it? Do you see them as totally different skill sets? Or? I want to ask you that question too. I mean, I, I, I mean, 
I wonder if you feel this way. It's just an enormous relief not to be writing. It's so good. Oh, yeah. my gosh. We have this conversation all the time. <laughs> yeah, almost, it almost doesn't matter what yeah. else you're doing. Like, you could be a galley slave, maybe, or, a, you know, I mean, it's just I'm not freaking writing, right? Like the, like, the weight of the unsaid, right, and, and, and the responsibility of trying to say something new but not outrageous and, and true but not banal is – is a hit- it's a, mm. I mean, I, I hate people who, uh, writers who romanticize the difficulty of writing, which is to say I hate myself because it, it's really freaking, it's hard. It really is hard. Whereas you could just flick, I mean, it was, it was a revelation that you could just flick on a microphone and just gas on. Oh my God, I can, I can relate to that so much. Uh, this, uh, this kind of brings us to S-Town then because we've got to discover, we have to discuss this with you. That whole approach with S-Town podcast was to create a podcast that was book-like. Uh, do you think that they achieved that? Um, can I substitute the word literary for book-like? Yes, yes. Yeah, right. I do think that they created something that had a literary quality that was quite genuine. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, and I worry a little bit that the medium is going to evolve away from us. Um, you know, that that uh, the, stel- the storytelling techniques... Uh, are very sophisticated. They've been refined in public radio now for 20 or 30 years in some instances. And um, and there's going to be beautiful, uh, quite literary, um, you know, beautifully crafted uh, narratives in podcasting and the informal, you know, shoot the shit format um, may, may just start to sound really old fashioned or maybe refreshing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do think podcasting can go in that direction. Did you like Down? I did, yeah. I mean, I really liked it. I I don't think I've ever kind of fallen into a podcast the way that I did with that one. Um, However, that is also, I did struggle with some of the criticisms around it as well. How did you feel about that? People kind of talking about moral obligations of journalism and... That's a fascinating question. I mean, I... I was one of the few people who didn't love S-Town. Oh, why not? My in-laws are from that part of the world. Um... And hearing that accent without also having discharged a you know holiday duty to return there for Thanksgiving was kind of um, <laughs> was a little bit of a chore. But um, I thought it was brilliant. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure it was, um, I don't want to say honest. Let me, let, me find, let me find a less controversial way of saying it. Um, I sometimes hear where they sanded and beveled and cut and in order to make it literary in that way, yeah. right? Because literary implies artifice and craft. And I just wonder what the balance between the truth telling, you know, um, uh, commitment of the podcast was relative to the literary beauty of it in a way. Mm. Um, what did you guys think of it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Took me, a, took me a while to get into it, I'll be honest. And then, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I, I can see what you're, you're saying about it. I, I get where you're coming from, but I, you know, and I was, I, I think not quite like you in that I was really fast, like really delved into it. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a good story and, and, and whatnot. Um, I was it was something that I was thinking about when I was preparing for our, our chat today. I mean, if you go back to Slate in 1996 and launching online journalism, I kind of feel like we haven't really got the future that 
was predicted back then. We're talking about podcasts and that tremendous success of S-Town. It's such an old medium. I mean, it's essentially yeah. reinventing radio plays. And, you know, back in yeah. the everyone thought the future was going to be, I don't know, virtual reality was going to come out of the screen. And yet, you know, your podcast is essentially just people talking into audio file. I know, it's so primitive. I mean, it was, it, it, and, the, and the essential revelation is so primitive. It's like, oh, audio on demand. I mean, really, it's just the on-demand function rather than anything really overly specific about the content, um, you know, that, that, that defines the, the medium now. But let's talk about this event on Wednesday night. I mean, your podcast is always recorded live, isn't it? So what is the difference with the live show? Well, we get to we get to see the faces of the people who actually listen to the show. We get to overcome some of our inherent alienation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, but uh, you know, it's funny. It's, it's our show on a normal week is a, is already weird, right? It's a performed conversation. I'm sure you guys can relate to that. And um, you know, if you sound a little bit too much like a broadcaster, you sound inane and stupid, but if you sound a little bit too much, like a bunch of people just sitting around flapping their gums, why would anyone listen? Um, and then you put it in front of a live audience and you magnify all of those contradictions in a way because well, what kind of a performance is this? These people paid money and got into a freaking subway and came here. Do they want something more than what we typically give them? Or, or are we going to overshoot the mark and like, you know, break our ankles and tumble to the floor if we try too hard? I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to know what kind of a quote-unquote show it is. But in Melbourne, we've taken <laughs> care of that. And you know how? Courtney... Barnett. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, how freaking awesome uh, is that? Are you a fan yeah. of her music? I'm a huge fan. All right. A huge fan. I mean, you know how it is when you're interviewing someone. I mean, maybe you know how it is this morning. <laughs> You don't really care about it. You have to pay that. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do the whole suck up. Oh, I love your podcast, dude. It's so good. Courtney Barnett, I love, I mean, I, when I say I love Courtney Barnett's music, I, I have the highest admiration for her as a songwriter, performer, singer. I mean, she's a wit. She's got soul. She's got heart. But she's also got a biting, biting, biting sensibility. Uh, I just think that music is, 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 it's just, it really is as good as it could be. So the, the idea that she's going to come in, she's going to play a song, she's going to chat with us about a forthcoming record or a record she's working on now uh, is thri- beyond thrilling. We did our first live broadcast um, at the end of last year, and here's a tip. Alcohol helps. But <laughs> 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 uh, the culture, Slate Culture Gab Fest is on this Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Triple is presenting it at the Melbourne Convention Centre. As we've just heard, Courtney Barnett's going to be playing as well as Donna Stevens, Julia Turney, and Stephen Metcalf, who has just been our guest. Thanks so much for coming. Guys, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Communities in Control is Australia's largest gathering of community sector workers, bringing together more than a thousand delegates for all kinds of discussions and debates. It's on at the moment at the Mooney Valley Racecourse and tonight broadcaster Andrew Denton will be giving the Joan Kerner oration, a conversation with Virginia Trolley about having a healthy death. But right now, he's joining us on the phone to talk about that. Welcome to Breakfast, Andrew. 
And good morning, and what a cheery breakfast subject it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a subject that you've been talking about a lot recently. You've got a book out about assisted dying entitled The Damage Done, and you're running a podcast series through the Wheeler Centre entitled Better Off Dead. Some of our listeners will know how you became interested in end-of-life choices, but others will not. So what was your personal connection to this issue? About 20 years ago, I watched my father die, and he died in great pain, and it was profoundly shocking to watch. I I will never forget it, and as I speak to you now, I see it. And, um, you know, I was in my 30s at the time, and like families are in that situation, I was traumatised by that, and I certainly wasn't thinking about the issue of assisted dying. But much later in my life... Uh, I read a story by an Australian writer whose father was Dutch and uh, in the Netherlands they have laws to legally assist people to die. He had cancer and she described the last week of his life before he was assisted to die, which was this incredibly civilised farewell to friends and families. He said everything he wanted to say. It was a beautiful, uh, humane passing and I contrasted the death of her father with the death of mine and it set me asking the question why why don't we have this law here in australia so what is the legal situation here in australia if i'm dying and i'm in extreme pain i don't want any further treatment what are my current options uh, legally, you can, uh, if you're in that situation, you can refuse all further treatment, including uh, food and water, and you can uh, let the disease take its course while dehydrating and starving to death. That will be supported in a hospital. Uh, it's psychologically painful. It can take a long time. Uh, it can take a very long time, and uh, it's it's not a really nice way to go. Legally, uh, a doctor can decide to uh, give you what's called terminal sedation. If, if you're suffering has got beyond the control of medicine, which does happen and, and does happen more than people care to admit, then they can slowly uh, sedate you into a coma from which you won't wake up. The problem with that is it's entirely up to the doctor how fast they do that. And if a doctor, as many do, has a strong religious belief uh, that you do, do not hasten somebody's death, then they won't do that very quickly, which is why there are and why I have many really searing testimonies from families who've watched people they love die in great pain, uh, pain not properly treated inside uh, hospitals. Yes, because a lot of listeners, I'm sure, will be thinking, okay, I support the right to choose, but I'll worry about that when the time comes. But, of course, people facing terminal illness are often very sick and very weak and don't necessarily have a great deal of autonomy. So... I've read that the terminally often take their lives in quite awful ways, and that comes out in your book, doesn't it? It does, and in fact, uh, perhaps what a lot of Victorians don't know is that while... um football season has been ticking past and life's been going on. Uh, about two years ago, a, a, an upper house cr- uh, cross-party parliamentary inquiry spent 10 months going around the state talking to people about what was happening in end-of-life care. And the most powerful piece of testimony they got came from the Victorian coroner, John Olley, who, and remember this is the coroner who deals in this stuff, had to collect himself three times while giving his own evidence as he talked about a particular group of Victorians, older, with irreversible diseases, beyond the help of palliative care, mentally healthy people from loving families who faced with no alternative were using ropes and guns and knives and nail guns 
to take their own lives. And he said, his office said, the statistics show that this is happening at the rate of at least one a week in Victoria. So as we sit here this week, one of those terrible deaths is going to happen because there is no law to help these people to offer them another choice. You've spoken in the past about the opposition uh, to these laws coming from a kind of religious force in politics. Would you say that's still the case? Uh, it's the core of it, but it's not all of it. Um, certainly the, the church and, and most particularly the Catholic Church, who have a core belief that uh, about the sanctity of life and only God decides these things, a belief I respect, by the way. I don't have any issue with that belief. I just have an issue with it being imposed on everyone else. Um, they are the, the drivers behind this. They're the drivers behind a lot of misinformation about it. And uh, they certainly do exert political weight. But there's another way in which the church is influential in this, and it, it's kind of a concealed way, and it's through medicine, because 60% of the palliative care in Australia is supplied by the Catholic Church. And the most powerful argument that politicians uh, persuade politicians to vote against this is that, well, we just need to give more resources to palliative care and it will fix everything. Now, giving more resources to palliative care is actually a brilliant idea. Uh, and it should happen because palliative care is a very important service for those who are nearing the end of life. I totally admire and support what they do. But it doesn't fix everything, and we know this because their own words and statistics tell us this. Every year by their own statistics, uh, something like 7.5% of their patients uh, die with severe, what they call severe physical symptoms. Now, what does 7.5% mean? Nationally, that's about 1,300 people, which is about the same size as our national road toll. Um, that's, you know, we understand the national road toll to be a tragedy. We throw billions of dollars at it to try and avoid it. But this, where we have 1,300 people every year dying terribly, not because palliative care are good at what they do, they are, but we live longer. Modern medicine can't fix everything. There are symptoms and diseases and human beings who are beyond their reach. And it's those people that a law like this is designed to help, the sickest people in our society. What's the trend around the world at the moment in terms of uh, euthanasia laws? Is it moving towards? Uh, absolutely. The arrow is only flying in one direction. Uh, the first country to have a law was actually Australia. Mm -hmm. The Northern Territory back in 1997 four terminally ill people were able to access it before the Howard government used a constitutional right for the federal government to overturn territory laws and repeal the law. So that was four people back in 1997. Today around the world there's something like 120 million people have access to this law. Most recently Canada was the latest country to add a law. Perhaps most surprisingly North America. There's seven states in North America including uh, California meaning that one in six Americans have access to this law. Uh, there's also uh, the Netherlands and Belgium in, in Europe, and uh, Germany is another, Colombia in South America, rather surprisingly. Um, but it's also an issue that is being heavily debated and being put before parliaments in lots of jurisdictions around the world. So as I said, the arrow is only flying one way, and that's because we live longer. The 85% of us are going to die of a chronic disease. This is an issue that potentially confronts every single human being and, and the, the, the pressure for there to be better choices and not just choices based on somebody's view of God uh, is, is growing, as it should.
Is this part of a broader issue? I mean, I feel that we struggle to talk about death at all. I mean, in the 15th century, the church published a a booklet entitled The Art of Dying to guide people through having a good death. Do we need a secular equivalent of that today? Look, I think um, both are good, secular and spiritual. Um, The the Victorian Inquiry, uh, I've read a lot of the submissions and transcripts of the uh, interviews that were done. And if there's one thing that comes through it, no matter which side of the debate people were on, is that we are really terrible at talking about death. And to my surprise, because I've been working on this now for two and a half years, one of the groups of people who are worse at talking about death are doctors, which I hadn't appreciated. Uh, it's On one level, of course, it's not surprising that we don't talk about death because, hey, it's not going to happen to me, is it? I'm not going to die. But on another level, it's the one thing that is inevitable that we're all going to face. And I do think, I think that's a very fair point. I think part of the reason the whole subject of assisted dying is difficult for politicians to deal with it is they kind of stick their fingers in their ears and go la 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 i don't want to know and so they're they're addressing uh issues which should be approached with reason with emotion and they're making emotional decisions and and they're not looking at what the actual problem is and how it can be fixed uh new south wales and victoria are both about to vote on assisted dying tasmania has already voted against it is the reform likely to get up in those two jurisdictions I think Victoria represents a very real chance, and and here's why. First of all, the state government is putting up the legislation, uh, and it's based on not something that's come from the Labor Party. It's a cross-party inquiry that recommended this law based on hard evidence, including going to places overseas where the law exists. And they came back and said, the safeguards work, you can write a safe law. Uh, More than that, the legislation that the government's going to put forward is being framed by an expert panel which has been led by the former president of the AMA, Brian Aula. So we're talking about serious uh, political uh, and medical thought has gone into this law. So that's going to be before the parliament July, August this year. There's a very real chance that law could be passed because it has great process behind it. However, there's been more than 30 attempts to pass a law like this in Australia since that law in the Northern Territory was overturned and all of them have failed. And one of the reasons for that is, even though every opinion poll shows enormous public support for these laws, people assume, well, it's such a no-brainer, of course it will happen. Those who oppose these laws, for instance, right now, I can assure you, the church is getting its congregations to write to MPs and say, don't, don't pass this law, You're gonna, they're going to kill me, I'm granny, they're going to kill me. They organise, they agitate and they persuade MPs not to vote for the law. So mm. if people want this law to happen, they need to get in the face of their MPs and explain why. Mm. You're speaking tonight at the Communities in Control conference. Can anyone come along to hear that session? I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I couldn't <laughs> think why not. <laughs> I, I haven't insisted on uh, security or bouncers. I'm not Trump. As far as I'm concerned, everyone can come. Everyone's welcome. Excellent. We've been talking to Andrew Denton. As I said, the Community in, Communities in Control Conference is on at the moment. It's taking place at the Mooney Valley Racecourse. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, and if people want to find out more, they can uh, find... Uh, I've set up an organisation to do, uh, try, agitate for law reform called Go Gentle Australia, and uh, we'd certainly welcome your support. And if you want to get active, contact us and we'll activate you. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, guys. See you.
Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Triple R. Uh, so before the break, I was telling you guys about Noel Gallagher's 50th birthday party, which yes. he threw uh, themed as the Narcos television show. So a cocaine themed party about the, t- uh, sorry, party about the TV show Narcos. And lots of famous people were invited, including Bono and Stella McCartney and uh, Damon Album from Blur. And it got me thinking, I I have always liked to think that Noel Gallagher would be friends with me if he knew me. Yes. Do yes. you understand that? Do you ever have that feeling about a famous person or am I just crazy? It was like when I was little I thought I was going to date Liam Gallagher. I'm happy that didn't happen. And I've told you about how I used to imagine, like, taking him to the farm. Yes. So. But if only Noel got the chance to know you, he'd appreciate. Me as Sarah as a friend. So I think yes. that if yeah. Noel and I were in a pub having some beers, we'd have a great chat and Noel would think, you know what, Sarah, we're going to... You're gonna, all right. You're all right. <laughs> you, you go all right. You didn't date my brother, yeah. so you can be mates with me. Don't know Sarah, that's I'm having accent. a party. I'm having a party. I'm... It's a cocaine thing, but it's no cocaine, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just a date. It's based on the, on the show. I'm a character out of Mary Poppins. seem to have gone in a radically different, <laughs> different direction. Do you want to clean some chimneys yeah. with me? Uh, yeah, so obviously he's just one of those people that I've always thought we'd just get along and we'd go... And we'd watch the soccer together, even though I don't really like that. But we like I, I like Man it's City. Hard. Soccer's it's hard. hard. It's hard. It's a hard game. And he'd appreciate that I thought it was hard. Yeah. And I feel like we would just hang out. We'd just hang out. Yeah. And we'd be good mates. Pop do you down have, the pub. Pop down. Do you have a yeah. bite? Have, have a, a bite. Have a couple of bites. Because yeah, you probably live a pretty... Clean some chimneys. Have a couple of bites. <laughs> you probably live a, a pretty similar kind of lifestyle. So I feel have like a, we do, right? A lot, a lot in common. So I feel like we'd bond over that. But do you have that person in your life where you think, if I just ran into you, I feel like I'm meant to be mates with you. I just like... We would get along really well. I have certainly have people that I wish that it... But probably in reality, that would never happen. Yeah, but what? Who? Who? Connie, yeah. Connie Britton or, or um, Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Ah, oh, and do you imagine things? Do you imagine yeah, yourself doing you things do together? together? Um, probably. Um, I wouldn't talk a lot because I'd just be, oh my god, you're the best, and I'd just be really excited to be in her presence. And um, I'd probably have like uh, imagine like going out for a lunch date. Like oh, yeah. with her and her mates, yeah, and she'd be like, "Hey, y'all, this is this is my new friend Geraldine. She's she works on the radio and she is amazing. <laughs> Not at accents though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should say that because um, I was just looking at that photo. Did you see it was circulating of Bono hanging out with George Bush at it, at their ranch? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. together and we're um, friends. They're friends apparently. George W. Bush. And Bono from U2. And it reminded me of a dream I had. So Bono from U2 as opposed to that other Bono (laughs) from... Oh, I'm glad you you cleared that up. It reminded me of a dream that I had years and years. I've always hated U2. I've hated them for years and years and him in particular. But I remember years ago... You hear about it a lot. (laughs) Any chance you get. I had a dream that we were actually friends, Bono and I, and I had to make an intervention to tell him that he was acting that his a music bit. was shit? <laughs> yes, and he was a, <laughs> acting like a bit of a dick. <laughs> and so we'd all got together because Bono was sort of, you know, in our friendship group and someone said, Jeff, look, I think you should talk to him because he's doing all these dickish things. And like- for many years you have hated him. <laughs> Many, many so years. So I had to, in my dream, I had to ring him up and say, Bono, we, we need to have a little bit of a chat about some of the things you've been doing. I reckon, yeah, if you met Bono in IRL, 
that you'd probably end up could end up becoming really good mates. I reckon you'd be good friends. Yeah. I actually think what? maybe yeah. you secretly want to be friends with Bono and yeah. all of your hate towards you two and Bono is because you feel left out of his friendship group. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. No, I reckon yeah, well, you'll see past... In my dream, he was very pleased to get this advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> someone thinks... Someone also dislikes Bono on the text line. Just, Bono just is such a dick. He is. That's what okay, I said well, to him. It. All right. Is that what you said to him? Your friend Bono. <laughs> Your friends with him. Yeah. I tell you who else. There's ones that are closer to home. It's like I'd like to think that um, like me and Dustin Martin from the Richmond Tigers would also be friends. We have nothing oh, yeah. in common. What are you going to do with Dusty? Maybe get my first tattoo because oh, I don't yeah. have any tats. So maybe that's what we'd bond oh, over. That would be a good bonding thing. Yeah. yeah. But I think we could just hang out, like just have a beer. Yeah. Go, go to the go, go like, to the go to some dances together. Do, do people still go to dance? I just hang out to go to the club with some other mates. Yeah, go and hang out with Dane Swan from like Collingwood a, at a barbecue. Yeah, barbecue. You'd go to Dane Swan's barbecue. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And maybe play some pool. I think you'd have a pool table. Yeah, we'd all play pool. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. That could happen. Yeah, that's we all quite live in, we all live yeah. in Melbourne. I always imagined what it would be like to be friends with Sarah Silverman and now I don't have to imagine it anymore. I thought you were going to say Sarah Smith. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, it's nearly the same. <laughs> Three triple R. It's Laura Dunham time Hello. here on Breakfasters. How are you going, Laura? I'm good. How are you, Jeff? I'm all right. Back at back in the chair this week. <laughs> I know what mm. you're trying to do. I was sitting in that chair this Feels time last good, week. Sure, you girls don't want me to stick around for the rest of the show. Wow. We could we could tell Jeff to go and get his coffees and then lock the doors. Oh, it's a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Mm. Off your pop, Jeff. <laughs> That Off your pop. No, it's Off good to have you back. Thank you. Mm. It is. For nice to now. Have you back too. <laughs> for now. <laughs> Thank you for having me two weeks in a row. I'm so excited mm. that you're two weeks in a row. Yeah, because I'm stepping, because I think you're going to have Kappa. Kappa Nick, was, Nick Kappa, yeah. who's my my friend and also the other funny bugger mm-hmm. that likes to come in, but he's whipped off to Thailand at a moment's As notice. I've been following his Instagram stories. Looks, yeah, a lot of singlets. A lot of blokes in the pool. A lot of white blokes yeah, in the pool. Yeah, you thought he was on a... <laughs> a Bucks weekend. A Bucks weekend. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. He's there for a podcast <laughs> festival. Yeah. That, oh. that, some, that some male comedians organise themselves. Yeah. And just have all other... It's, it's, basically, it's essentially a Bucks weekend. It's essentially yeah, yeah. a Bucks weekend, just no one's getting married. Yeah. <laughs> they may as well get married to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here I am to do the funny bugger. Yes. And I've got a question for all three of you, right? Yes. Because I've been... I thought when I got asked um, a couple of days ago to come in and do the Friday funny bugger, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll talk about current affairs. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll talk about the news. I don't often do that when I come in to do funny bugger. And then I looked through the news and I felt like there was only really three people I could talk about mm-hmm. and I didn't mm-hmm. really like any of them. Me, can I, can I try and, and guess them? <laughs> no, I'll yeah. try and I will guess them. Uh, Donald Trump, Margaret Court and Chappelle Corby. Bingo. Bing, 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 bing. So if you had to only, if you were only able, this is like the question of like if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? If you could only talk about one person for the rest of your life out of those three, who would it be? 
It's a hard oh, question, a, isn't it? I would go... Um, she helped Chappelle Corby. She's the easiest, isn't she? Well, yes, because at least the conversations could go... I don't know. Somewhere I don't know nice. why Chappelle Corby. She's, yeah, maybe. She can... Um, some redemption. Yeah. Maybe. maybe. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of um, like Margaret Court because, um, you know, she's obviously horrible and everything, but um, that expression, all the devil when she was talking about um, same-sex couples, I kind of feel you can work it into just about every conversation. Every time anyone says something, she's like, all the devil. All the devil. (laughs) All the devil. Is that what she said? (laughs) All the devil. Wow. Wow. The devil. What an intense dinosaur lady. (laughs) And I'd go Donald Trump because he's getting old and he... Nobody oh, lives forever. Classic. Mm. That's true, actually. Then you might mm. get your life back. Yeah. Mm. Okay, where well, Chappelle's sticking around for a while. Yes. Yeah, but I feel anyway, like I made I thought, the wrong choice. I thought to myself, oh, I'll talk about Chappelle. And then I realised I don't want to talk about Chappelle uh-huh. because Good. I don't think that she should be in the news. I don't find her interesting. I don't think she's really done anything remarkable there's a lot of other people that are more remarkable mm-hmm. that are better to talk about i feel the same way about think... margaret court yes yeah let's not say that dinosaur lady's name anymore all right <laughs> let's call her dinosaur lady <laughs> she That's who fun. must not be named <laughs> voldemort <laughs> anyway enough of her um i so i was thinking i'll talk about Chappelle, and then i couldn't think like i don't want to i don't want to talk about Chappelle. so i thought like we should I should come up with a list of conversations that are better than talking about Chappelle. Love it. Good idea. And so that's what I've come up with, right? So you could talk about um, issues that, you know, different people are passionate about, like marriage equality Mm -hmm. or rhinos being poached in Africa as well. Um, They're not funny, though. Um, So I, (laughs) I think it would be better to talk about cheese. Oh, yes. Yes, I got it. <laughs> Jeff, name your top five cheeses. Oh, well, they're all so good. I like camembert, but I also like the hard cheeses. Yeah, like um, a smoked cheddar. Oh, smoked cheese is the a best. A parmesan. Yeah. Yes. Although, and we were doing a news story the other day about, um, where was the place that I was mispronouncing? Gloucester. 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 Gloucestershire? Yeah, where they roll, no, that's wrong, is I that, think. No, but right. they, they roll them down the hill and everyone has to chase after them. Please, that is so much better than Chappelle Corby. Yes. Roll, running rolling down cheese. a hill after a rolling piece of cheese. Yeah. I tell you what I'm still a fan of too, the old Kraft single. Hey. Oh, they've renamed you know the, those. Oh, yes. what do they call mm. them? Mm. Uh, dairy Lee's. Da- yes, Dairy Lee singles. But you know what else they've done? They're not individually wrapped I was going to say, that's that's that, would, that would no longer be environmentally friendly. Yeah. yeah because my mum's big on... Like packaging, yeah. like she doesn't like packaging, so we never got craft singles because she'd say there's too much packaging. Ah, oh, she was ahead of the times on them, and instead we would get a block of cheese and cut it. Yeah, hmm. which I always got always... so petulant about. <laughs> did you ever want the craft singles? <laughs> did you ever bite the corner of the cheese when you had a block of cheese? No. Oh well, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Your mum would have hated that. You used to bite it. You used to pick it up and bite it. Yeah, we used to just. I oh, couldn't be bothered getting it. Cutting oh, the piece mate. off. With, <laughs> that's um. <laughs> that is so lazy. You are like a human so, rat. So someone come You're in a little nibbly human rat. Just to get the cheese out, which is gnawed out. Oh yeah. my god, jeez, that is. There was one time. 
There was one time when my – I'm just talking about eating things out of the fridge now. Yeah. There was one time I used to love eating lettuce, like a whole bulb of iceberg lettuce. Are you serious? And there was one time when my sister walked in on me and I was in the fridge. Like I was had my the fridge door open. I was in the fridge eating a lettuce. <laughs> and I said – I didn't think anyone was watching me and I said, oh, lettuce, sweet giver of life. <laughs> Much better than talking about Chappelle. Why are you eating lettuce? Who eats lettuce? Yeah, some people eat a tomato like an apple. You ate a lettuce, a whole lettuce. I eat a lettuce like an apple. Oh, my gosh. You you don't peel the leaves off? You just Just chomp into it. chomp into it. Sometimes I'll peel the leaves off and roll them into a tight ball and then eat it. Yeah. Um, I feel like lettuce isn't even made for eating. It's just It doesn't really fill you up. I just love the the freshness. It's like something a horse would do. Well, call me a horse, Jeff. <laughs> oh, lettuce. Sweet giver of life. It doesn't give anything. Like, it's not it's just the giver of life at all. And isn't it the, isn't lettuce the most, like, nutrient-free vegetable you can eat? Because it's just nothing. Yeah, it's just, like, it's water, just water and, and fiber cells, or yeah. yeah. That's it. I could eat it for days. <laughs> anyway. Next time you come in, we'll have to have a, a big lettuce <laughs> tray out for you. Yeah, lettuce and some rolling cheese. We could roll some cheese down the steps. Into some lettuce. Mm, mm. Please. Uh, anyway, better than talking about Chappelle. Carry on. Uh, I saw Vince Colosimo at Officeworks the other day. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you really? Yes. What was he doing? See, better than talking about Chappelle. <laughs> so much better. Um, because... Me and a friend of mine, we uh, play this game called Famous or Not. So when we're out on the street and out in, out in public, if we see someone that looks like someone famous, mm. we'll say, famous or not, Brad Pitt, or famous yeah. or not, Bruce McAvaney, right? And it's just that they look like that person. Ah. It's just a way of saying, hey, that looks like that person. Anyway, play it. Um, but <laughs> we were at Officeworks and I said, famous or not, Vince Colosimo, and it was Vince Colosimo. Oh, my God. Did, it, did he, he hear you? Nah, oh. don't think so. Was he? What was he doing? He was looking around the cheapy, like, little, like, um, erasers and things. And, like, you know how oh. you can get, like, little packets of paper clips? Yeah. It was like a little stand with all these little things for kids. Oh. Maybe he's got kids and he was, I don't know. I feel like office work's the kind of least likely place to see a celebrity. I yeah. totally agree. And then he walked out and we saw him walking down the street and we watched him. And as doesn't he, have a car. Well, maybe he lived close by. Mm. Better than talking about Chappelle. <laughs> um, the, you're not going to like this one, Sarah. All right. The sexual tension in this room. Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you know, every week... <laughs> every week when I sit down, not every week, but whenever oh I come in for funny buggers, I'm like, how can I fit this in? How can I annoy Sarah more? I just yeah. love the thought that three grown oh adults that all are in long-term partnerships <laughs> somehow have this, like, horrific uh, sexual tension. May, may, maybe we could talk about Chappelle Corby now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that one is. Maybe Chappelle, you would rather uh, I talk about Chappelle. I'd rather you talk about all three of those people than that situation. You mean all three, like no, the three of you? No. <laughs> Don't deny it, Sarah. Oh, my God. Uh, Hurry up. Okay. <laughs> In the miniseries, <laughs> who would play Chappelle? Because there will be a miniseries. We all know there will. Was there a 
There's already was been there one, already hasn't one? there? Oh. Yeah. You know, who, you know oh. I think could play though? Ricky Lee. He used to be in <gasps> yes, Australian Idol. Yes, because they both Idol. have um, huh. small chins. Yeah, they're small chins and kind of smaller eyes. Maybe yeah, it could and be a big musical. eyebrows. Yeah. Big arching eyebrows. I think she'd do a really yeah, good she job. she could belt out a, a few songs. Wow, I've been yeah. in this prison for <laughs> 10 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming home to the Gold Coast. <laughs> oh, Ricky Lee's from the Gold Coast too, Oh, I my think. God. It's meant to be. <laughs> yeah, it's all coming together, isn't it? Maybe I should play Chappelle. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that's um, that's pretty much all I have. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.